My name is Andrew Bustamante, and this is Everyday Espionage. time with Edie Jackal, my friend and former deep cover CIA officer, is limited. And one thing that I really want him to talk about is the sacrifice that he had to make to live the life that he has lived. Edie Jackal calls espionage his vocation, his passion, but every passion has a price. So in this second to last conversation with my friend Edie Jackal, I want him to talk about the challenges, the hard part of his vocation. I want him to talk about the things that he struggles with so that you and I can learn the ground truth. We've kind of been all over the map. I love where we've gone with this. What was the hardest part about your experience in intelligence? The hardest part was developing these very deep relationships. So you just told me that your favorite part, what you loved about it, was the deep relationships. Right. And now you're telling me that the hardest part of it was actually the same thing. Only the flip side, because you had, in our business, you have to be cold hearted. Mm. Our mission is no longer valid. Our mission has been changed. Headquarters says this area of operations is no longer a priority. A priority. It's no longer of the interest of policymakers. Have to move on. You specialize in the impossible. You got another impossible situation in a different country, a thousand miles away. Well, the most difficult thing is I got to leave. I got to tell my brothers now because these tribal guys are my brothers. These relationships I have with these people are based upon trust and based upon being in a firefight. I mean, I defend them upon these guys. I didn't go into areas where I had the Delta Force with me or the SEALs or any military unit. A lot of times I'd be alone. My fighting force and my support network were tribesmen. I had to, my life was in their hands every day. And the only way I built that relationship was through trust and respect. Some of these brothers died on the, died on the battlefield, you know, lost a lot of guys. Now, when I leave, that's a stronger relationship that most families have mm. because ours is based upon blood. You leave that relationship, you get on a helicopter and you're leaving. That's a difficult time. I still think about my brothers all the time. It's interesting to me. And I want to challenge a little bit. I want to challenge you a little bit. Because there are so many aspects of this work that's that's hard. And I think it was, in hindsight, I think it was an unfair question for me to ask you on the spot. What's the hardest part? Because you have to think about what you put your family through. You have to think about your own physical and mental health and what you put yourself through. You have to think about the relationships that you made with the special operating units for the U.S. that you did operate with, right? And all of a sudden, you instantaneously have to assess all of these things for what is actually the hardest. And I'm not saying that I I disagree with you that leaving those tribes people behind is the hardest, but how do you view, how do you process through all the different things that were so difficult? You fight like you train. You have to dedicate yourself to being properly trained. The amount of training that we receive is incredible. I mean, if you you could train for 30 years, very hard, and you're going to have two or three instances, two or three moments in your entire career 
where you have the ability to maybe change history or make a significant impact. So you're always prepared for whatever you have. That's never been the issue with me. You can always learn how to shoot a gun, you know, straighter, hmm. learn how to throw a knife better. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the most difficult thing is the emotional and the psychological part. The duality is very, 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 very difficult because that has that takes a toll on your family. Yeah. You have to separate who you are out. And for a lot of people, you just cannot do that. A lot of people can never quite make the full crossover back to civilian life. We had an exercise that we had that we had to do. Um, I'd be away for six months. I'd come home. The only way we could handle this is my wife and I would sit down and say, okay, Jim Smith has to go to the mountain. Now. Jim Smith being the alias that you've operating. The alias, Jim with. Smith. Okay, Jim Smith is going to get on his horse and ride up into the mountains, check back into his little stone house. He's got his dogs, his horses. He's got his record player with his Mozart and Beethoven. He's got his library, his books. He's got his big fireplace. He's gone. And that was, that's where he goes. That was your, that was that was your, that was my that was your exercise. You and now I want the other guy back, who you actually. Are. I want Jackal back. You right? want Jackal back. So, so you get off a plane, Jim Smith. Right. You go to your home, right. with your family, right. with your wife. You're still in your mind, in your persona, in everything about you. You're still Jim Smith. I'm still not fully. Then, no matter how hard I try, I'm still not fully back. You're still not Jackal. Right. You sit with your wife at a kitchen table, and your wife says. I married Jackal. Jim Smith, you're a nice guy. Right, exactly. But you're not welcome in my house. We do the role play thing. And the Absolutely. two of you have an exercise right. where you send Jim Smith away right. while Jackal goes and picks up the dog crap in the back. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm Jack. And I'm back to being Jackal. Yeah. And I love Jackal because I love my wife and I love my family. And Jackal is the, is the person with the vocation that made it possible for Jim Smith to even right. exist. Right. Jim Smith is like, you know, Christian Bale. In Batman, his movie is my mission. Mm. The movie ends. There's all kinds of stories about these actors. If you look at the method, like Paul Newman was one, Christian Bale, D, uh, Daniel Day Lewis, Anthony Hopkins, all the best of the best, Robert De Niro. Uh, these guys had serious psychological problems Same. after they end the movie, yeah. because they're back to just being, you know, who they are. Why do you think these guys are such? Dysfunctional people. They don't have a wife to sit across the table and say, hey, let's, let's. Alec Bowen. Let's you hear about Alec Bowen in Manhattan. He's a, le he's a legendary guy for like punching a cameraman, going crazy in a restaurant, yeah. driving his car into somebody. They have the same problem. I mean, I have the same problem as they have. I've just learned how to deal with it through heavy psychological analysis and counseling. So you don't always have the opportunity, right? You don't always have the chance in the field to go through the systematic process of sending Jim Smith to his nice little, you know, right. his stone mountaintop. There's a story that, that you and I have talked about. You were in a very sensitive situation, sitting across from a very powerful man who had a lamb on a spit. And in that moment, you had to make split-second decisions. Am I Jim Smith right now, or am I Jackal? Right. Can you tell us what you're willing to tell us about that story? Yeah, sure. I mean, what really... The story is about being prepared and being decisive. In business, the guy that wins the deal, you know, is the guy who's decisive and the guy who's done the proper planning. 
Yeah, I was involved in a in a situation with a well-known steely-eyed killer of a tribal chief who I had to recruit in order to carry out the mission because he had a piece of intelligence that, that we desperately needed to retrieve someone, okay, who had been hiding for a very long time. And I was eventually called to his tribal compound. If you can imagine sort of a dusty town, a dusty village of, you know, a few thousand people. And I was uh, directed to uh, visit with him and I was escorted with his gunmen through a series of trucks. We change out trucks. And I eventually arrived at his walled compound and found myself sitting across from a fire. And sort of, yeah, he was gently sort of interrogating me. Yeah, so he's got this uh, lamb on a spit and it's night and the, you can see the fire and the lamb had kind of a glow to it as he kind of turned it every once in a while on the spit. And every time he asked, of course, I'm an alias, right? So let's use the Jim Smith analysis. So he's talking to Jim Smith, and I got this whole story. I've been in this guy's country for many, many months. And, of course, he's been kind of monitoring me because I'm the only guy operating in the <laughs> wilderness. So, of course, he's probably wondering, who the hell is this guy and what he's doing? So he, I assume he's got the book on me. Sitting across from him, and every time he would ask me something that I could tell maybe it didn't come out exactly the way I wanted it to. <laughs> and maybe he wasn't believing it 100%. He was kind of circumspect. You know, he, and I'd see it in his eyes because you could see the fire now because this is at night. You could see the fire in his eyes, reflecting off of his eyes. It was a scary look, man. you got to imagine this guy, 6'5", about 250, a huge guy, cargo camouflage pants, army boots, Two AK forty seven. The guy who's gotten to his position by being the most violent. The guy. only thing I knew about this guy was we had already learned that he had killed several dozens of people by himself in a tribal dispute. So I'm there. There is no QRF. Mm -hmm. There is no American military within a thousand miles, probably. There's nobody coming for me. Meanwhile, I got probably twenty five of his gunmen on, on top of the wall around his compound, weapons really pointed at me. With the safety off. I know what it sounds like when you take the safety off of an AK-47. Every time I answered a question he didn't like, he'd turn around with this metal poker and he and he poked that lamb and you could hear the you hear the sizzle. And the message was very clear. Not sure if I buy that, Mr. Smith. You know? yeah. And the questions kept coming from different angles, different perspectives. How did you feel in that moment as you're sitting there from this steely-eyed killer and you know that you know that you've got talent, you know that you've got skill, but you know that you don't have the skill to outrun 25 gunmen and four layers of security in a in a dusty tribal village. You know when my right-hand man dropped me off at the first truck exchange and headed the opposite direction, a guy that had been with my side the whole time, I was pretty damn scared. I mean, I, I was scared. I was really, really scared. I don't scare easily. But the hair on my, I remember the hair on my arms was up. And I'm walking through these side streets surrounded by gunmen. There's, there was no turning around. But when I got in there, when I'm inside the gates and they closed the big gate, they put that big lock, you know, that two by four, you know. Mm -hmm. And he's getting down. He's getting down and dirty now. We're getting to the core here. He's unpeeling the onion, right? It's like, a, it's like an elaborate poker game. I never felt as good as I'd ever felt. I could literally feel the blood running through my arms and legs. 
That feeling came. I was from, alive. It came from terror, but it was still. I felt good. I was on top of my game. It was it was like a drug. My mind was working like a well-oiled machine. Everything came together. All data points finally connected. I was on my game. Except for those bad answers that he didn't like. Except for this. <laughs> but now I was focused. Now I'm thinking, this is mano a mano. This is what you lift all them weights for. Right. This is the game. The moment. This is it. This is my moment. And I remember all of a sudden I just got more, I just got more confident. I sat up straight in my chair. And now I'm looking at this dude straight, eye, eye for eye. And he knows. I could see the look in his eyes. He kind of blinked a little bit. He knew who he was dealing with at that moment in time. I remember he stood up. He stood up, I stood up. I looked right in his eyes, he looked in my eyes, and you could hear people on the compound readjusting their weapons because now they don't know what's going to happen, right? He waved his hand one way. He waved his hand one way. I'm a dead man with probably 25 bullets in the back of my head. He said, Sir, what are you really here for? What are you really here for? And, and looked at him. And here you are. This is you at the kitchen table with your wife sending that alias persona right. up on the stone top. But right. you, you don't have a table. You don't have a exactly. wife. And the decision you make right now decides whether or not you live or die. Right. And whether or not we accomplish a great mission. I told him, I said, I think you know what I'm here for. And I told him what the true purpose of my being there was. It's something that we call a breaking cover. You almost never do that. But in this case, it was my insides. It, it wasn't even me talking now. All my training, everything that I'd done in, in my previous life had come to fruition. Right there at that moment, it was the right decision. Because he looked at me. First of all, I wouldn't be sitting here hmm. if, if I gave him the wrong answer. Because I think deep down he knew. He said, I got it, and I'm going to help you. Come with me, Mr. Smith. <laughs> and he put his arm around me all the guns came down you're in it wasn't that. necessarily a party atmosphere don't get me wrong right know? people were still on edge but it's a survival atmosphere but he took me in his little rock of a compound which is about the size of this hotel room and he said I will help you and the rest is history is it? that's amazing man one right decision yep at one point in time just like you were saying changes the course of history. Right. And that operation to this day has never been devolved. Never been devolved. Not even close. No. And it can't Out be. of all the leaks and everything, all the books have been written, not not even a hint. And it can't be, man. And, and, and we both know that it can't be. But my point here is that years of training and the decades of fine-tuning your vocation. Right. All of that work wasn't so that you would have a comfortable life every day. Yeah. It was for that one decision. Absolutely. That had you made the wrong call, the mission would have failed. We'd have one more star on the wall. Yep. And and a bad guy would win the day. Yep. And that's why you don't do this if you want a career. If you want to be a great painter, a great composer, it better be your vocation or else you have no shot. A careerist would have never been able to pull that off. Mm. Sorry if there's any careers listening. It's, but it's a message. I'm, Everybody I'm here to tell you the hear. truth. Man. You know how many yeah. MBA professors are out there telling them that all they have to do is focus on their career? 
How many parents out there were misguided by their parents who were misguided by their parents who still believe that you have to pay the price of what everybody else before you has had to do and you have to work your way up from the bottom? I mean, all of that is actually, it's actually garbage. It's not, in fact, true. But it's become this piece of cultural rhetoric that when we don't know what else to tell ourselves, that's what we tell ourselves. All the helicopter parents that are listening out there. You can't wasting hel- your time. You can't helicopter passion. Right, exactly. And the exactly only right. way that that vocation gets ignored is when we choose to ignore it. Because every one of us knows. I call, I call it a boomerang. That's the yeah. closest thing I've ever come to being able to to explain it. Right. And there's a a guy that I met who's a who has the world record in multiple types of boomerang, which I didn't even know was wow. a thing. Right. A guy lives in Florida. Yeah. Cool guy. Gary Broadbent. Really nice, really cool guy with a pretty amazing story of his own. But he actually creates boomerangs, real legitimate sporting boomerangs, not just like the aboriginal throwing stick, but, but boomerangs that come exactly back to where they were thrown. And I, I love watching his boomerangs at work because no matter how hard you try to throw that thing away, no matter which direction you try right. to toss Absolutely it, right. yeah. it comes right back again. Right. We all know what that feels like. We all know what it's like to be faced with something where we're like, I don't want this. So you ignore it or you push it away or you try to throw it away. And six weeks later, it comes right back knocking on the door. Two years later, it comes right back over and over again. It comes back and it comes back and it comes back. That is that vocation. That is that calling that you can't ignore. Right. And if you ignore it, it keeps hitting you over the back of the head. It's like... Wherever you travel, you gotta take yourself with you. Wherever you travel, you gotta take yourself with you. Are you going your the impact <laughs> I love that <laughs> the impact that you're trying to make in this world is never going to be achieved by throwing away that vocation. Absolutely. Very, very difficult. Very difficult to do that. I mean you, you look at the great people, the great composers, the great writers, the great musicians. A lot of these people did not become famous until after they died. Right. So why did they do it? There was no power. There was no status. There was no monetary reward. There was a vocation. They didn't know why they did it. They exactly. Did they they didn't know. But it was deep inside of them. Yeah. They knew it was their vocation. But they did it regardless. It was hard for me to leave CIA. I was at a point in my career where, and you, you were there too, like things are going very well. Life is getting more comfortable. You yeah. have the respect and you have the notoriety and you have the chops that the agency looks at and decides, hey, you're ready for the next level. You're ready to be rewarded by being put in charge of people. You're ready to be brought in house. You're ready to be a manager. You're ready to be a a chief or a deputy chief. You're ready to call the shots, right? right? Just like every good pilot hates the day that they're put on the scheduling team and every, you know, professional football player loathes the moment that they're taken off the field and told that they have to be a coach, right? And I remember leaving. I remember making the decision to leave CIA. And I remember thinking to myself, is this the right decision? Is this my peak or is my peak still ahead of me? Of course. And I lean on the vocation thing because I always felt like the agency was great, but it was a step, a stepping stone, a, yeah. a piece of the story to something greater. Right. What was it like for you when you chose to leave? Very difficult uh, 
transition transition because you can't duplicate that passion you can't duplicate the emotional attachment the relationships very 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 difficult so now how do i deal with it i do a lot of training i do a lot of mentoring because when you get to a certain age you transition from action to giving back and training mentoring coaching instructing is is a way of giving back and in a lot of ways i derive as much satisfaction out of that because i know i'm saving lives i'm these guys are like my sons and daughters so i would still call that my vocation because i'm doing the same thing only a different way a different way way. i'm not executing anymore i'm i'm passing this information to a younger generation which is extremely satisfying that that knowledge transfer is what everyday spy is all about too Exactly. And everyday espionage is my way of transferring yeah. that knowledge because just like you have seen the benefit in your life, in your neighborhood, in your relationships, right. I've seen the same benefit in my own life. I've done the corporate America thing. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know you've done the corporate America thing. Yeah. That's not a hard game to figure out. As many people out there as are trying to figure out the corporate rat race, it's really not that difficult. If you learn how to build deep relationships, if you learn how to leverage vulnerabilities and motivations, if you learn how to read people and if you become aware of the fact that people are not putting that kind of effort and time into reading you, you gain immense leverage. You gain immense benefit. You become the influencer that everyone's trying to be, but they're all trying to do it the wrong way. It could be a very positive approach. I don't want to give people the impression that it's a dark place, it's negative, it's manipulation. Not at all. There's a positive way to do this. I'll give you a couple of examples. Actively listen to what people are saying. Absolutely. Actively listen. Don't feel like you have to talk all the time. Let people talk. Let them talk. I love people who talk a lot because the more they talk, the more I can listen. Hmm. You know, I'm going to call somebody. You have a saying for this. What kind of person do you like to be when you walk into a room? You mentioned it the other day. What you day? said you always strive to be the dumbest guy in the room. Yeah. I want to hang out. I always want to be the dumbest guy in the room, the dumbest guy in the car, the dumbest guy on an operation because I want to learn from other people. Absolutely. I want to suck that wisdom, that knowledge. And wisdom is really different than knowledge. You know? I mean, wisdom is the application of knowledge through experience. You know? So what you're really looking for is wisdom. And if people in the corporate world would just get a mentor and listen, actively listen, show interest in that person, show them a certain level of respect, Man, you can get ahead so much quicker than the guy who spends all the time in the meetings just babbling about something. Yeah. You know, doing short-term manipulation, taking somebody out to lunch, spending money on something. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Just listen to what people are doing. Be observant in the office. And you can go a long way because people value that. Jackal said it himself, that the great honor of learning what we've learned training like we've trained, and serving on the very edge, is that one day we get to give it all back. Service never stops. It just changes. And Jackal went from building tribal guerrilla forces to teaching people how to do the same in their workplace, in the field, in the military. He continues to train. My objective for EverydaySpy.com and the Everyday Espionage podcast isn't that different from him. I want to teach you the same skills that I've learned, the same skills that Jackal has learned. I want to equip you to take control every day. 
This season is dedicated to letting you learn from the best, from covert operators who know the value of espionage training. You are learning that value every day you practice these principles. And I am excited to see where it takes you, because this is Everyday Espionage. Everyday Espionage is dedicated to one thing, educating everyday people. I know that not everyone will listen, but those who listen will learn. If you learned something new today, click subscribe, review, and share the podcast with a friend. Find me on social media at Everyday Spy or on my website, everydayspy.com. If you are up for a special challenge, visit everydayspy.com forward slash operations and join me for an authentic spy training mission. And above all else, remember that knowledge is freedom.